ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racing, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show this week. Just love these topics we're going to cover. Joining me will be Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, who, of course, is the world's largest digital asset manager, and they're behind the nearly $30 billion Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, which currently trades at about a 25% discount. Now, in an effort to hopefully rectify that discount, Grayscale is trying to convert GBTC into an ETF, a spot Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin ETF. They do have a filing with the SEC uh, who actually just asked for public comments on this. I mentioned this last week. I, I may throw my hat in the ring here. I'm seriously considering submitting some comments myself. Uh, but another interesting aspect to all of this is Grayscale had their attorneys send a nasty gram to the SEC back in late November saying the SEC committed what's called an Administrative Procedure Act violation because the SEC has approved futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, but they won't approve spot-based ETFs. Grayscale says these should be treated exactly the same. So we are going to get into all of that and we're going to spotlight Grayscale's first ETF, which just launched a couple of weeks ago, the Grayscale Future of Finance ETF, ticker GFOF. This should be a great conversation. Also joining me this week will be John Davi, founder and chief investment officer of Astoria Portfolio Advisors, who's an ETF strategist. They offer ETF model portfolios to advisors. But John is also lead portfolio manager on a brand new ETF from Axis Investments. It's called the Axis Astoria Inflation Sensitive ETF, ticker PPI. This is actually the first ETF from Axis. 
who I would say that's a whole uh, another story. I think Axis is quickly going to become a player in the ETF space. But uh, this ETF, PPI, is trying to position itself as a one-stop shop for exposure to investments that could benefit from an inflationary environment. And I'm not sure there's any bigger concern for investors right now than inflation, right? We got this huge uh, CPI number last week, 7.5% year-over-year inflation in January. That's the highest reading in uh, 40 years. There was a hot PPI number this morning. And obviously, because of that, everyone's on pins and needles wondering what the Fed's going to do. So John and I will discuss uh, all of that later in the show. Now, to start this week, I have Tom Hendrickson on the line with me. Of course, Tom is president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. We're going to set the table a, a little bit for my conversation with Dave Lavelle. We have the results from the recent Bitwise ETF Trends 2022 Benchmark Survey of Financial Advisors' Attitudes Towards Crypto Assets. I've got to tell you some very interesting takeaways here, so let's get to those now. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Good morning, Nate. Always a pleasure. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So look, last time you were on the podcast, which I believe was late January, we covered these poll results from an investor symposium ETF trends held with Investopedia back at the beginning of the year. And as I'm sure you recall, there were a number of crypto-related questions and results we discussed. But as we were going through those, this Bitwise ETF trend survey came up. And unfortunately, we just didn't have a, a chance to get to that in any detail. And I really wanted to circle back on this because I do think there are some really interesting takeaways here. So I thought to start before we dive into to the results, which both of us have, do you want to offer some quick background just on the survey itself? Yeah, absolutely. So Nate, exactly. So one of the biggest topics within the world of financial advisors and the conversations that they're having with their clients, as we've discussed, um, you and I, a number of times on the pod, is that advisors are getting more and more uh, inquiries and are getting up the learning curve as it relates to how to gain exposure to crypto, how to converse with their clients about the space, what the allocations look like, how to um, access the investment strategies and, and, and ultimately um, you know, include that within the broader portfolio construction. And, and we're seeing that, as we've talked about, in a big, big way through a lot of the advisor behavior across the ETF trends and ETF database platform and have been seeing a steady increase in engagement in that area over the last three plus years. And what's really cool is that we try to bring the best from an implicit data perspective and explicit, as you know, Nate. And, and here we've gone out to our advisor community and the advisor community more broadly and really with the idea of trying to understand how advisors are currently thinking about crypto and whether or not they're allocating the crypto in their client portfolio. So we surveyed and this survey happened in December 2021. We surveyed over 600 advisors, uh, a nice broad swath, about 45 percent of which are, are RIAs, you know, 30 percent independent broker dealers. Uh, there's a nice mixture of wirehouse uh, representation and some financial planners in there. And then also a nice spectrum of AUM under management. So, you know, the, the, uh, the split between under 
50 million and over 100 million was about equal. And we had about 12% of the universe that we surveyed with more than a billion dollars under management. So a great group of advisors to take the pulse on where their heads are at as it relates to crypto, their exposure within their broader portfolio construction and how they're approaching it now and how they're approaching it in the future. And before we dive in, the only other part I'd add, Nate, and what's really cool about this data set is this is the fourth year that we've done this with our friends at Bitwise. And so Bitwise have, have been real pioneers in tapping into the, the, the minds of the advisor community and understanding how they're positioned um, and how they can be a partner in the positioning of client portfolios for that advisor community. And so uh, what's neat is that we can start to see the trends and how that's changed over time. And so this isn't necessarily a survey that we need to look at as, as really, really high, hyper timely. It's one that we can, you know, up, uh, increase the altitude a little bit and look at how the, how the broader trends are changing over, you know, not days or weeks uh, or even quarters, but over the last number of years. So happy to dive in. Yeah, I think that's great background. I'll just add to all that, that this survey, it's extremely robust. The, I, I mentioned this when we uh, chatted back in January. The, the total report here is about 11 pages long. And it covers every aspect of how crypto is being viewed by advisors right now. And we're going to obviously hit on some of the high notes, but uh, definitely recommend everybody go check that out directly. So, so Tom, let's dive into the survey. And uh, th th there is a ton here. I'm not quite sure where to start. I guess we can just jump around on these various questions. Feel free to chime in wherever. But I do want to start with something that I think would have been hard for most advisors to believe maybe four or five years ago, which is that the survey found 94% of advisors reported receiving questions from clients about crypto in 2021. 94%. That's up from 81% in 2020 and 76% in 2019. 94%. That's basically everyone. Yeah, exactly, Nate. And, and you know what? I have to throw my hand up and say that if you would have asked me if that would be the statistic um, four years ago now, I would, have, I would have said no. And in fact, I remember having a, a conversation with Hunter, uh, the CEO of Bitwise down at Inside ETFs four years ago, and, and just how prescient they've been about where the, the puck was going in terms of um, advisor interest. But also what's really interesting here is that Part of this is a real two-way street between uh, advisors uh, educating their clients, but also uh, the clients educating advisors. So it, you're right, Nate, it's, it's now become um, a requisite part of the vernacular of the advisors and, and, and the way that they communicate to their clients. And, it, and like you say, 94%, that might as well be 100%. Well, I think what that tells us, and it's obvious, is that it's long past time to be prepared to at least competently answer questions about crypto if you're a financial advisor. And again, you may recall when we discussed those investor symposium uh, poll questions a few weeks ago, one of the results was that nearly 60% of respondents, and there were thousands of respondents to that uh, survey, by the way, this wasn't 10 people, but 60% uh, did not own any crypto. And when they were asked why, over 50% said it was because they don't understand it enough. And I wanted to point that out because, you know, Tom, sometimes I get asked why I cover crypto so much on this podcast, right? This is supposed to be ETF prime, not uh, Bitcoin prime or crypto prime. But the reason I cover it so much is because it's not going away. 
And I think there's a real need for good information here. And I think when you see 94% of advisors are receiving client questions on crypto, that proves that. That's that's the statement itself. And so, again, I know I've, I've talked about this a lot on the on the podcast in the past, but it's just we're so far past the point where if you're an advisor and you're not uh, at least competent in having a conversation around it, you may not agree with crypto. You may not invest in crypto. You may not want your clients to be in crypto, but clients are going to ask questions about it and you have to be prepared to answer those those questions. And well, go ahead. Well, no, absolutely, Nate. And, and so two things to layer in there is is part of this second derivative, how the rate of change is changing. So 94% this year, up from 81% last year of advisors receiving questions about crypto from clients, up from 76% in 2019. So clearly that chart is going up into the right. But the other component is it's not this really small group of clients who are you know very specifically within the space, or maybe they're tied to a company has exposure there. And so they're up the curve themselves from an educational standpoint. But the, the there's a broadening swath of interest across a larger group of the uh, clients that are asking their advisors. So 30, 39% of advisors reported that at least 10% of their clients had asked questions about crypto, which was up more than double from last year, where only 18% of advisors reported the same figure. So there's, a, there's an increase in... Um, uh, the questions coming from a broader swath of the client base. And I think that that's, that's really fascinating because we're going wider and deeper at the same time. It's a great point. It's not just one or two clients that are asking questions. It's a growing number of clients. L let me give you another finding that I think ties into this a, a little bit, which is that 47% of advisors reported owning crypto in their personal portfolios which that's a bit higher than the number I just gave from the uh, investor symposium results where 40% said they own crypto, but obviously still in the ballpark. But but here's what I think is interesting, Tom. So A, obviously this tells us more advisors are becoming interested in crypto, right? They want to per personally get involved. We know that. But B, I think this shows advisors realize they need to get involved and get comfortable with how crypto works if they're going to recommend it to clients. And on that note, 16% of advisors are currently allocating to crypto and client accounts. That's up from 9% in 2020. So again, I think this ties right into everything else we're saying. There is a need for education, but one of the best ways to learn in the crypto space is by doing, and a growing number of advisors are doing that. Well, that's exactly right, Nate. And just to come on top of that, you know, so again, the idea of, of the trend there. So the 47% of advisors who own crypto within their within their own portfolio. So they're getting out and ahead of the, the intellectual educational frontier by uh, learning by doing. But that's up from last year. Just last year, where only 24% of advisors reported that, which was up from 2020, where only 17% of advisors reported that they were doing it in their own portfolio. So the advisors are are ahead of where the clients are allocating within their within their broader client group, which is fascinating. And, and let me ask you this, Nate, uh, is this is this attack that you've taken? You know, have you set up a MetaMask wallet? Have you gone and you know, it, it's a little bit painful. It's a little bit clunky, but it is exceptionally educational to understand, you know, moving money in and buying some ETH or some Bitcoin and then and then, you know, opening up some of these accounts. Is that something that that you've employed within within your practice? It's such a great question, Tom. You know, it's funny because I've covered crypto and Bitcoin on this podcast now for, I think, over five years, which I'm really proud of uh, being early in the space. I've talked to a lot of experts. I've read books. I've read the white papers. 
this space is really hard to get your head around. And for me, I do learn by doing. And so, uh, yes, is the answer. I mean, I've, I've set up um, MetaMask. I've set up a Coinbase account, moved Ether over to MetaMask. I've actually minted my own NFT, which, by the way, it's still out there. Uh, it's, it's on OpenSea. It's perfect jumper. It's me shooting a three-point jumper, all net. Nobody's bought it yet, even though we had, you know, perhaps a bubble in NFT. So I'll just throw that out there. But, uh, you know, I mean, I've had fun messing around with like NBA Top Shot, right? And moving crypto over there and, and buy. And you don't have to use crypto to buy NBA Top Shot NFTs, but, but you can. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've played around with various coins, you know, looked at. And this is absolutely not investment advice, but Bitcoin, Ether, Solana, uh, et cetera. For me, that's the only way to to really learn about the space is by doing. I just think it's hard to get your head around if all you read is the technical white papers and books out there, and even talking experts. Well, yeah, and, and Nate, I uh, you know I, I certainly uh, follow you closely on Twitter, and and I know that you're you're doing all those sorts of things. But I think it's great for other advisors who are listening to hear that you know maybe some of the folks who are in that fifty three percent who have not yet done it because you know the the trend here is undeniable. And, and the other trend that we are chipping away at, and you've certainly been um, on the forefront of doing this from an educational uh, perspective, you know, both through all of your social media and, and on the podcast here is the chart that we'd like to see go down into the right is this concept of the educational component being an impediment to understanding the space. And I know that there's a few questions that we can touch on that, that go there, but really that is an underlying theme that, that uh, you know, pulses through a lot of this survey is that there's still a lot of information gap between um, people who understand the space a little bit better than people that don't. And the advisor community is quickly getting up the curve in terms of how they're approaching it through a lot of education. One of the ways in which they're doing it is by investing on their own. That's well said. And, you know, I'll jump in and offer a few more stats here around that. So 60% of advisors are either considering adding exposure to crypto in 2022 or still weighing the merits, right? So this this gets into, okay, evaluating crypto, what makes sense to potentially recommend to, to clients. And th- this gets down the path to some of the most interesting findings in the survey, at least in my opinion. So um, of those advisors, so let me let me lay this out in a couple of ways. So first of all, of the advisors who have not allocated clients to crypto, they were asked the, the reasons why that was the case. And number one uh, was regulatory concern. 60% said that's the biggest hurdle. Number two was volatility, just the volatility of, of crypto overall. That was 53%. Um, no idea how to value crypto was 34%. And then lack of easily accessible vehicles like ETFs and mutual funds, 32%. And, you know, the one question you and I did address when we chatted again back in January, which I thought was the single biggest takeaway from the survey overall, the question was, if all options were on the table, what would be your preferred way to invest in crypto? And the number one answer from advisors was an ETF at 58%. Now, investing directly in crypto was number two at 21%. Uh, that, that has come up from about 16% in 2020. But the ETF method is still way out front here in terms of how advisors want to access. And if I try to pull this all together, to what that tells me, Tom, is that advisors still want that easy button approach, which ETFs provide because of some of the things that we're talking about here. And just th- there is a steeper learning curve. And I think interest has peaked and advisors do want to get exposure for clients to to crypto. But 
you know, it still may be tough doing that with individual uh, coins and tokens. I think that the, the survey here would tell you that that's going to change. I think more and more, and there are solutions out there. I've talked about them before. Somebody like OnRamp Invest is making this easier to invest directly in, in the underlying coins. But in the meantime, the ETF does solve this problem. It, it, it's an easy button approach, if that makes sense. Well, that's yeah, it's spot on, mate. Um, you know, if you if you go down that list of concerns and, and the impediments currently advisors face and, and how to solve for them, if you put um, a specific coin and, and just we'll use Bitcoin as, as it's the most mature. Um, if you if you said what well, there's a, a spot Bitcoin ETF available, does that solve those issues? And, and you kind of go down that list that you rattled off there, and 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 really a lot of it is yes, yes, yes. Although I would just highlight the fact that even despite uh, the delivery mechanism or the wrapper, the education and, and how to converse with clients about it, there's still there's still a gap to be closed there for some of the advisor community. So I think that if, you know we need to continue as a as an industry on these concurrent paths is to continue to add um, different choice and different options for for ways in which advisors who are comfortable to access the market have, can do that. In a way that is, uh, you know, fits in their workflow, you know, has an ability to be rebalanced, you know, custody is at the same spot as you know, individual equities or other ETFs or et cetera, et cetera. But also concurrent to that, there's this swath that the, the, the survey is saying is that we need to continue to educate that as an industry about um, whether or not you invest just to have the conversation with your clients and for you to lay out that strategy. And part of that is the changing face of the clientele. You know, you think about all of the things that happened within the space, not only within the last four years, but within the last one year. And we call out a few of them within the survey. And you think about some seminal moments like Coinbase going public or, you know, the, the, the broader market capitalization, if you will, of, of crypto, you know, cresting three trillion dollars at one point during calendar year 2021. You know, there's a lot going on um, in the space where, that that. It, you know, supposes there's a lot of momentum there and it's just going to continue in that regard. So I think that that's, you know, to your to your point earlier, um, the importance of this within the advisor community has never been higher. And frankly, it will continue to get higher, I think, based on this data. And to be clear, when I say ETFs are an easy button uh, approach, in my mind, that doesn't mean you can just forget the education component, right, and, and not pay attention to that. My hope is, is that if we have spot crypto ETFs, a spot Bitcoin ETF, for advisors who are just trying to dip their toe into the space, again, this will pique their interest and head them down the path towards getting even greater education uh, across crypto. So I almost view the ETF, it's a little bit of a, you know, I hate the term, I guess, gateway drug, if you will, into the, uh, into the crypto space. Um, Tom, just a couple of minutes left. Something else that I, I found really interesting was among the 16% of advisors who are allocating to crypto and client accounts, l listen to this breakdown of what they own. So 80% hold crypto at a weight of 5% or less in their client portfolios, with 72% invested in Bitcoin, 50% in Ethereum, and 16% in altcoins such as Solana and Cardano. 54% had exposure to crypto equities, so miners and blockchain ETFs, those sorts of things. What did you make of that? I thought that was interesting, diving into what people actually own. I think it's really interesting, Nate, and I guess to you know kind of piece together a little bit of the puzzle here is that that we know a couple things. We know that uh, there's a there's a big swath of the advisor community who is educated, 
And to your point, I, I was certainly not suggesting that you were uh, sliding by the educational component. I know that's, you know, deeply firm, you know, within your ethos. But there, uh, let's let's take that group who feels comfortable with the space. And it really is uh, the matter of the delivery mechanism. I think that the most interesting um, thing that you brought up there was this exposure to uh, some of the crypto equities as a solution that fits and checks some of those boxes that we talked about as it relates to rebalancing, into the workflow, into the custodying element, into the communication style and cadence with their clients. And, pro- and in a lot of ways, and, and certainly this is where you need to you know, crack open the hood and make sure that this is true if, if you're investing in any of these types of things, but there, there can be um, equities that have a very high correlation and so, you know, to get to the, to the conversation around understanding what the desired risk profile is um, and what the desired outcomes will be based on certain uh, things that play out within the market. I think that the advisor community is, is kind of circumventing the fact that there are not uh, a spot, there is not a spot ETF product and going into the crypto equity space. That, that to me of that question was the most interesting part. A hundred percent. That's why we have like 16 blockchain ETFs out there right now and more in the uh, in the hopper with the SEC. There, there was that stat that 46 percent of advisors in the survey indicated a desire to allocate to crypto equities versus 45 percent to crypto itself. And again, this circles around everything we've been talking about. I'll use the term again. It's sort of a, a gateway uh, into crypto itself. I think it's it shows you advisors are interested in the space. They're dipping their toe in the water, figuring out the best way to get exposure. And and crypto-related equities are perhaps an easier transition here. But, Tom, we're going to have to leave it there. Fun chat, as always. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nate. Have a good day. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. Consider the health of your portfolio. The first ever mRNA ETF, MSGR, from Direction. These are the companies producing and commercializing vaccines, therapies, and delivery systems based on the revolutionary new world of mRNA technology. The mRNA ETF, MSGR, from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. My next guest is Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale Investments, who's the world's largest digital asset manager, currently offering 17 investment products, nearly $40 billion in assets. That now includes their first ETF, the Grayscale Future of Finance ETF, ticker symbol GFOF. This launched uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Now, of course, Grayscale is also still pursuing a spot Bitcoin ETF. They have a live filing with the SEC to convert the very popular Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, ticker GBTC, into an ETF. The SEC 
is actually now asking for public comments on that filing. I'm considering submitting a letter on that. We'll see. But Dave's now uh, on the line with me. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Hey Nate, it's uh, really great to uh, it's really great to be on, and we we're, we would be happy to have your uh, your comment letter. So let's talk about that. Well, let me <laughs> ask you this: Do you like? Can I actually move the needle at all by submitting a letter and, and publicly commenting on your spot Bitcoin ETF filing? Like, does that matter? These public comments that are coming in, a thousand percent, absolutely. And you know, look, everyone's going to come with their own you know kind of information, their own perspective. Certainly, investors have had one experience, um, but like you know, industry you know industry ex- executives and, and industry experts are certainly going to come with another you know set of perspectives. And absolutely, I mean, look, as part of the statutory process, I mean, you know, this 19b4 filing process and a 240-day waiting period, and you know, which is set to expire in early July, July 6th. Um, you know, the SEC has to pay attention to those to those comment letters and have to address what has been brought up in those comment letters. And so absolutely, uh, your listeners, you, um, individual investors, institutions, um, you know, absolutely, they, they make a difference. Okay, so a lot we're going to cover today, but while we're on this topic, let's just stick with the the spot Bitcoin ETF situation. I know that's what everyone wants to hear about. And just up front, as always with these conversations, obviously, Dave, you get a free pass on any question. I know there are certain areas you just can't venture into from both a legal and regulatory standpoint, but I still may try asking you, so we'll see how that goes. But but first, you do have this live filing with the SEC for a spot Bitcoin ETF. Right. What can you tell us about the status of that and, and, and what kind of clock is the SEC on right now? Right, right. So I think um, essentially there's two different paths that ETFs come come to life. Um, those that are more kind of generic and therefore meet the generic listing standards, or as many of your listeners would know, the under the ETF rule or 6C11, so 75-day waiting period and the products become immediately effective after expiring that 75-day clock. Th- this is different, right? This is a more novel exposure. Uh, it does not meet the ETF rule, and um, you know, so so just like any other novel product that has come to market it goes through a more rigorous filing product pro- process and a more rigorous um, you know, review process by the SEC and, and ultimately is on the 240-day clock, um, of which we're in the middle of, and that 240-day clock is set to expire on July 6th. Obviously, the intention is to convert the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, into an ETF without getting into all of the mechanics here, I know this can get a little bit wonky. How would this process go? Like if the SEC approves your filing, then then does GBDC simply move to trading on the New York Stock Exchange and authorized participants can start creating and redeeming shares? What's the actual process? Come on, Nate, you've got an ETF geek on the line. I like to get (laughs) nitty gritty. (laughs) Come on, Um, that's unfair to tell me to simplify. No, no, all all joking aside, um, I think there's like really three really critical things um, that, that I would highlight. Number one, investors don't have to do anything. That's the first most important, uh, first and most important component to this. Um, you know, the two things that ultimately happen is that the product will be uplisted from the OTC markets to the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and second is that, you know, pretty much we flip the switch and then there are simultaneous creations and redemptions. Um, which are obviously the cornerstone of the ETF product. 
And what's most important about the allowance of and the permission of simultaneous creations and redemptions is that that will absolutely uh, collapse any deviation that exists between where the product is trading in the market throughout the course of the day and what the product's net asset value or intrinsic value is. And so there's been plenty of conversation around GBTC trading at a discount currently, and there was conversation around GBTC historically trading at a premium. Those deviations from its intrinsic value will uh, ultimately be erased um, because the simultaneous creation redemption, which again is the cornerstone of the ETF, will allow for you know the product to be to be trading in line with its actual value. Dave, on that last point, so sure. again, GBTC, this is a private trust that trades over the counter, currently nearly thirty billion in assets. But this has gone from trading at uh, 30 to 35 percent premium in January of last year to now about a 25 percent discount. And so the end result is that even though Bitcoin is up around 45 percent over this time period, an investor in GBTC would actually be down close to 10 percent. I'm just curious. I mean, you explain well, you, you know, some of the mechanics there. But what do you think has actually driven the discount is it that there are now futures-based Bitcoin ETFs available and Canadian spot Bitcoin ETFs? Is it these other products that have sort of reduced demand for GBTC shares, or are there other factors? Yeah, so obviously the um, the, the reality is, and although the product is not a closed-end fund, um, it behaves like a closed-end fund in the sense that. You know, shares can be created, but they can't be redeemed right now. We're not permitted to, to do that. And so, therefore, the fixed nature of the shares that are outstanding allow the kind of, you know, principles of supply and demand of the market or, you know, more broadly, the, the market dynamics to really drive the secondary market pricing of the product. And so where it's actually trading, the price that it's trading over the counter. And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, some of those market dynamics have to do with look in January of last year what were you know what what were the opportunities or what was um, you know available to investors to get actual you know spot Bitcoin exposure they were certainly more limited than they they are today um, and so there are you know different um, you know essentially different exposures and different exposure opportunities and frankly the investors conviction has changed um, you know from January of last year to this year. So that change in kind of conviction around the broader asset class is certainly a component to the market dynamic. But frankly, um, you know, for me, it, it, you know, if you believe long term in the asset and you believe that we are going to achieve um, this approval, it's a tremendous buying opportunity. Um, look, I traded closed end funds for a very long time in my career um, and, you know, paying close attention to, you know, ranges of discounts. Um, in closed-end funds can be a really compelling trading uh, trading strategy. And so, look, uh, you know, I view it as a buying opportunity. The discount, I think, gets us into a really interesting area. And I, I don't know how much you can speak to this, but I'll, I'll set the table like this. So I know your head of legal, Craig Psalm, he said the current Bitcoin ETF landscape is, quote, unfair and discriminatory against GBTC shareholders. And... Look, we don't know when the SEC is going to finally get comfortable with a spot Bitcoin ETF, but right. I know I know Grayscale is not just sitting back here. And you actually ha had your attorneys 
Send the SEC a letter at the end of November arguing that the SEC's approval of Bitcoin futures ETFs, which I do have a question for you on those, but your attorneys argued that the SEC approving futures-based Bitcoin ETFs and not spot-based Bitcoin ETFs is, quote, arbitrary and capricious and in violation of what's called the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA. Now, again, I realize you may have to tread carefully on, on some of this legal stuff, but can you tell us anything about that approach yeah. and, and maybe offer some additional color here? Yeah, listen, for, for, first and foremost, we, we have long been advocating for our investors, and we take that very seriously. Um, you know, prior to this open comment period, we we took that burden on our on our own shoulders, right? And and we were engaging with the SEC, engaging with, you know, members of the Hill um, and members of Congress down on Capitol Hill and really spending a bunch of time ensuring that we were delivering what we were hearing directly from our investors, right? Over 600,000 investors. Now that the open comment period um, is here, we actually have the opportunity to let, you know, all of our investors say, hey, you have a chance to utilize your own voice now, which is something that we're really excited about. And I think it, you know, that would make sense to you and make sense to, to, to the investors at large. As it pertains to um, one particular comment letter that you're referencing, and again, arbitrary and capricious are, uh, I'm not an attorney, but those are very important words when you're thinking through a potential APA violation argument. Um, you know, the reality is, is that I know it sounds a little bit outrageous to think about you know, a lawsuit against your regulator. Um, but the truth is this happens and there are rules of engagement and uh, the SEC has to follow those rules. And, you know, those rules of engagement, if, if, if one particular product or one particular filing or one particular issuer, right, is being treated differently than another particular filing or another particular product or another different, you know, particular issuer, um, then that's in violation. And, you know, this is, um, you know, this is an important thing that we're focused on. And, I mean, in the simplest way to put it, Nate, if, if the SEC is comfortable with futures-based ETFs, right, futures-based Bitcoin ETF, and the futures market is inherently and inextricably related to the underlying Bitcoin market, and, you know, the index that the futures are based on and the index that our product is based on are largely, right, um, the vast majority uh, of overlap, um, then we believe that there's an opportunity to, you know, essentially say to the SEC, look, um, we're being treated unfairly. You know, I, I, I have no desire um, to, you know, to, to get in a lawsuit with our regulator. We certainly want to work constructively. We certainly have appreciated the um, level of constructive engagement that we've had for, for years with the SEC. And, you know, we also appreciate that they have a very difficult job to do. But all things considered, we want to be treated fairly. Um, we think that we have an opportunity here um, to really bring to market something that investors want um, in a market that has matured considerably since this conversation started. And, you know, look, we remain really optimistic that the SEC is going to get to a good place on this and investors are also going to get what they want. I think listeners know exactly where I stand on this, but I'll just reiterate a couple of your points. You know, the biggest issue in my mind 
is that the SEC keeps citing this potential for fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot market. But to what you were saying, futures-based ETFs get their pricing from that exact same market. It's the same exchanges that a spot Bitcoin ETF would use to price. It's just mind-boggling to me. The other thing that I'll I'll mention here is the SEC is saying that the CME Bitcoin futures market is not of significant size. But yet again, they approved Bitcoin futures ETFs based on those same CME traded futures. Those two points in particular are are where I I get tripped up on this whole thing. It just doesn't make sense to me. We could head down a, a rabbit hole and talk about the 40 Act and the 33 Act wrapper. To me, it doesn't matter because if the SEC is saying their concern is is over fraud and manipulation in the underlying market, then we need to come back and and talk about again how are Bitcoin futures priced and how would a spot Bitcoin uh, ETF be priced. But uh, I, I digress. Let me ask you this: so. There are currently Nate, three. Nate, Go Nate, ahead. I'm yeah, off. I'm going to cut you off for a second. It sounds like you got a couple of good points for our comment letter, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to have to pen something. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm getting pushed into the corner here. Um, now, what, what I want to ask you is like, look, there, there are currently three futures based Bitcoin ETFs out there. There's another yep. ETF that's sort of a hybrid. It's 50 percent futures, 50 percent blockchain yep. type companies. But there's only about. $1.2 billion invested across those. Now, they've taken in $1.7 billion in inflows. Right. Obviously, performance has been a challenge here. But, you know, after right. that initial pop, that, that first few days, there really have, haven't been a, a ton of flows. I'm just curious, do you take anything away from those numbers? Do you, do you, is that good, bad, neither? Um, look, it, it, I think it makes sense. Um, a couple of points come to mind. The first point is, um, you know, History has told us in instances where a commodity can be reliably stored, like gold or silver or precious metal, that that a physical or a, or a spot, you know, ETF is the right structure. And and in instances where, you know, the commodity can't be reliably stored, say oil or corn, for example, you know, the futures-based product um, has really kind of won um, because there isn't a better option. And so, you know, I think largely the approval is is a, a step in the right direction and, you know, rising tide lifts all boats and we're super supportive of it. But I think, you know, investors and kind of ETF users understand um, the merits and the realities of a futures-based product. And look, there are some, you know, structural components to a futures-based product that, you know, inherently bring some inefficiency to, you know, an investor's ability to really, you know, track the spot price of the underlying asset, um, you know, with a great deal of efficiency and precision. And so, you know, in this instance, a spot-based, you know, Bitcoin ETF is a far superior model. I, I, you know, I don't think that's really up for debate. And, you know, those that are comfortable with utilizing a futures-based solution in an ETF wrapper are taking advantage of that um, with their eyes wide open. So, look, it's a great step in the right direction. Um, you know, we're supportive of that. We're, we're appreciative of that. But I, I think I think it's going to be a much different scenario upon, um, you know, a spot Bitcoin approval. Look, it's a matter of it's a matter of just when this happens. It's not a, a matter of, 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 of if any longer. Dave, just a few minutes left. I knew we were going to get crunched for time. I should have known better. Uh, I, I had an ambitious list of topics for us to discuss. I do want to get to your first ETF. Hopefully, Please. The, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, hopefully this is the first of many. The ETF is the Grayscale Future of Finance ETF, ticker GFOF, launched in early February. Just walk us through the basics here. What does this hold? What's the investment goal? Take us through this. So listen, we're, we're defining a brand new a brand new theme here. This is not a Bitcoin application product. This is not, 
uh, a blockchain replication product. This is defining the digital economy. And the digital economy is the cross-section of technology and finance. And while there may be some overlap with other products that are currently in the marketplace, we have decidedly built this index. It's a passive product. We've decidedly built this index to not be like some other products in the marketplace. This is not holding companies like Tesla that have a lot of Bitcoin on the balance sheet. This is not holding semiconductors that are, you know, some of the technology that's powering um, the rigs um, and the mining rigs. And this is not, you know, the broad-based payment processors like Visa or MasterCard, and, nor is it the banks that underwrite those. And so I think some of the earlier products that came to market had a very select and small universe to choose from, and therefore they had to kind of go further afield. This is a really concentrated basket currently that is really giving exposure to you know, this burgeoning digital economy. The digital economy is new. Um, I, would, I would make the analogy that this is you know, 1995, 1996, and looking at the internet, and this is an opportunity to you know, kind of invest in the digital economy's infrastructure and I think if we were to, you know, time travel back to 96 and you and I would probably be saying, you know, I'm not going to buy a shirt or a pair of pants on the Internet. I can't imagine that. I can't try it on. But I might bet on the Internet's infrastructure. That's what we're doing here. People haven't yet determined or defined or understood what the digital economy is, Nate. But, you know, this is an opportunity to, you know, really invest in the infrastructure and the index construction is really clever in the way that we're going to be able to kind of grow the exposure over time. Over time. There are names that you'll recognize, uh, like a PayPal uh, or a Coinbase, and then there are a number of names that you wouldn't recognize because they're not household yet. And Dave, just to be clear, you mentioned maybe there is some slight overlap with some of the other products on the market. Yeah. I, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, so I checked uh, over the weekend. I count 16 blockchain or digital asset-related ETFs that are out there right now. There are more on the hopper with the SEC. Just just to be clear, I mean, how exactly is GFOF uh, differentiated? And, and maybe more importantly, how do you think investors should evaluate these types of products? Yeah, so look, it's different in, in the ways that um, you know, we have, again, decidedly um, determined how to build the methodology in partnership with Bloomberg. And so there are three distinct pillars of this, of this product. There's the digital asset infrastructure pillar, right, which is where there's probably the most overlap with some of the other products in the marketplace. There's technology solutions, and then there's financial foundations. And so, look, I like to use the analogy of this methodology is like a net, right? And we've, we've kind of, you know, built this net in a way that every quarter when the product rebalances, a thousand names are going to get thrown into the hopper. And as companies, you know, adapt and as companies become more integrated into into the digital economy so too will they be kind of captured by this methodology and not being constrained to have to include companies that have bitcoin on their balance sheet or companies that are just you know um, building semiconductors or you know companies that are broad-based payment processors will allow us over time to have a more pure play on what the digital economy is going to be and look Look, let, let's look at the Super Bowl and some of the commercials. Obviously, there were some names that are, you know, central to, um, you know, the crypto markets. But every other consumer brand was trying to figure out how they're going to participate in the metaverse or how they're going to adapt their business to really, you know, be be intertwined into the digital economy in a way that's that's current. And our product and the methodology is built to do that. And so, again, if we went back to 1995 and said, goodness, do I want to bet on Amazon.com or, 
you know, do I want to bet on a company that is, you know, certainly had a flash in the pan? People don't necessarily want to, and investors don't want to, you know, make that choice. But this is an opportunity to invest in the infrastructure of the digital economy in a way that can be really valuable for for investors to take some of the some of the guesswork out of it. Well, Dave, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Congrats on the launch of this ETF. Like I said, hopefully the first of many. Great having you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here, Nate, as always. And I'll, I'll keep my eyes peeled for that comment letter. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> that was Dave Lavelle, Global Head of ETFs at Grayscale. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShare Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by John Davi, founder and chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors, who's an investment manager and ETF strategist currently overseeing more than $1.1 billion in assets. And at the end of last year, John partnered with Access Investments to launch an ETF. It's called the Axis Astoria Inflation Sensitive ETF, ticker PPI. Nice ticker there. I'll give that an 8 out of 10 on the ticker scale. But uh, John's the lead portfolio manager on that ETF, and he's now on the line with me from New York. John, great having you back on the podcast. Thanks. So what did you think of my uh, ticker score there? I'm assuming you give yours uh, a 10 out of 10? You know, it's, um, it, I mean, for an inflation ETF that the ticker PPI, I, I think it would be a 10 for 10 just on that effort alone but uh you know i i agree there's some other tickers out there that are you know you know they they're uh you know tracky trendier and and they do other things but uh we're, we're pretty pleased with our ticker for sure i'm like uh dave portnoy trying to rate pizza places minus the big social media following i would say look if you had cpi that would be a home run i'm only deducting a point or two because my guess is some people just may not know what the ppi is and actually that's a good jumping off point for us to get into this for people unfamiliar what exactly is the ppi the producer price index what is this measure so the ppi is um an inflation measure and what i would say is that so there's two things one is cpi and one is ppi both measure inflation. PPI measures, um, let's say, the, the cost of what producers will pay for their products. So things like mining, manufacturing, you know, natural gas, electricity. Th that's what the PPI is. CPI is more like goods and services that, you know, you, you go into a grocery store and you see what, you know, the cost to buy, you know, household durables and stuff like that. So CPI, more goods, you know, by the normal everyday you know, person, whereas PPI is more like 
you know, what are you going to pay to, to mine and manufacture in agricultural? Ho- hopefully that's, uh, that's clear. Okay, so let's do this. Let's start with the ETF itself, and then I am very interested to hear your take on the uh, the current market environment and how Astoria is positioning portfolios right now. Of course, we got a, a big PPI number this morning, but um, your ETF, it seeks to take advantage of an inflationary environment. This is actively managed by yourself. You're the lead portfolio manager. Walk us through the strategy. Sure. So I think first thing I would say is that, um, you know, people say, okay, like, let's protect against inflation. So I see a lot of people buying tips. Um, You know, last year, $40 billion, you know, went into tips ETFs. You know, on average, I would say they were up 3 or 4%. But CPI last year was up 7%. So you underperform the rate of inflation. There are just stocks out there that and sectors that'll you know, benefit from higher inflation. So, you know, things like energy stocks and banks, materials, you know, when inflation rises, these stocks historically, you know, have done better. Now, past performance don't take of future results, but I think the idea that we have at Astoria is like, why not try and embrace inflation? We know that it's been a problem for the last year. It, it, it's going to be a problem, I think, you know, for the next few years. So rather than try and, you know, run away from it and use instruments like tips that aren't really the best hedge for inflation, let's try and embrace it. So things like commodities, you know, including our ETF, um, the four sectors are are energy, banks, materials, industrials. Uh, They make up the lion's share of it, you know, 70 to 80 percent ish, uh, you know, 10 to 15 percent commodities. And, And we do use a little bit of tips, but that's really just meant to dampen the portfolio volatility. Um, so that's what it does. It's actively managed. You know, it's a rules-based process for how we pick the stocks. And then the active overlay is how much we allocate to the U.S., non-U.S., how much we want to have, you know, tilted towards commodities versus, you know, tips versus stocks. Um, last point I'll make, Nate, is that, you know, this year tips are down 3 4%. Inflation, you know, is, is up 7 So all that money that was put into tips last year is all underwater, Um but there are sectors that are doing pretty well year to date, namely energy and, and banks. So if I were to boil that down, and I mentioned this uh, at the top, I mean, I would describe this as a one-stop shop for exposure to areas of the market believed to best benefit from an inflationary environment. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. And, and the genesis behind that is that about a year and a half ago, we went to our financial advisors, because we serve as an outsourced CIO, and we saw that there was so much concentration risk in tech and growth stocks in your standard 60-40 model. And we said, look, you know, we think on the margin inflation will rise. Um, you know, let, let's put together a satellite portfolio of, of sectors and themes that we think will make sense. So we had our core 60-40 model portfolio, which had, you know, 10, 12 tickers, and then our inflation-sensitive SMA had another 10 tickers. So it became too overwhelming. So we said, look, we think ultimately, you know, a one-ticker inflation solution makes a lot of sense. And that was kind of the genesis of why we, you know, went ahead and launched it. How did you end up partnering with Access? And it's interesting. I mean, PPI is their first ETF. Now, they have a bunch of other filings in the hopper with the SEC, including these leveraged and inverse single stock ETFs I saw last week. I know they have a uh, Bitcoin futures ETF filing. I I personally think they're going to be a real player in ETFs longer term. But what's your backstory with Axis? So so I've I've known um, Greg Basick, and he's one of the, uh, the original founders of Index IQ. 
um, who in my former life, you know, so I, I quick background, it's been 20 plus years in the ETF ecosystem, um, you know, writing research, developing uh, ETF solutions, but all at the institutional level. And then five years ago, I started the Story Advisors to develop model portfolios for RIAs and, and uh, financial advisors. But I had known Greg Bassett. You know, he's got a deep background, and, and, and his other, you know, colleagues at Access Investments, they've got a deep background in the ETF ecosystem. They've got Ben Fulton, who's one of the, you know, the original guys um, at, at, in the ETF uh, ecosystem. You know, I think he started Power Shares. So you know we, were, you know we we were in, we knew each other and we said look you know we think that this can make sense in an ETF wrapper, you know they have a history of bringing institutional strategies, um, you know that couldn't be accessed by retail, from their days at NXIQ when they were bringing like hedge fund, replication and, and institutional type mandates into a, a retail wrapper. So that's why we joined forces and you know so far we've been uh, very happy working with them and. I do think that they will be, you know, a big player in ETF uh, ecosystem, like you, like you said. All right, John. So you did a good job walking through the strategy. Let's talk markets right now. We we did get this big uh, CPI print last Thursday, seven and a half percent inflation year over year in January. That's the highest mark since 1982. I mentioned the PPI number this morning, and you look. Of course, markets are now pricing in a number of Fed rate hikes. Just give us your quick thoughts on everything right now. I mean, how, how do you expect this all to play out moving forward? Well, I, you know, the history and the evidence says that when interest rates rise, you know, high multiple stocks, you know, on the margin typically struggle. Um, and, and sure enough, that's what's playing out. So it began last year where, I mean, first of all, the, you know, the 10-year was at 30 basis points in March of 2020, and we're now at, you know, over 2%. So interest rates have been rising, you know, for the better part of two years in reality, right? I know people are waking up now, but we identified this a while ago, as I said, and, and why we built that inflation-sensitive portfolio and why we were tilting towards value and, and cyclical stocks. Um, so, so when, you know, rates rise, P multiples compress, so high P stocks on a relative basis will, under, will underperform, you know, lower P stocks. So, you know, we do think that there's a rotation out of growth into value. I think it can last, you know, uh, quite some time. And I've got some evidence, you know, some, some time periods we can talk about, you know, where value kind of did very well for long stretches of time. So I think our whole premise is, you know, continuing what we've identified, you know, the better part of a year and a half ago. So I think you want to be more active in your portfolio. I think dispersion of returns is going to be pretty wide. You know, if I look year to date, EWZ is up 15%. Um, you know, the Brazilian ETF, you know, the LATAM ETF is up 13. You know, Q QQQ is down 13. S&P is down 7, 8. You know, so you've got this dichotomy of returns. You've got broad-based commodity ETFs that are up 11. So I think, you know, what's interesting this year is that you've got the 60-40 model portfolio, which largely speaking is down because both U.S. stocks are down and U.S. bonds are down. Um which is the reason why I think, you know, you want to have exposure towards, you know, other sectors and, and other parts of the world, you know, emerging markets, Europe, which has been largely ignored, you know, for the last 10 years. So being more global, being more active, uh, I, do, I do think alternatives are going to play a big role this year. Um, you know, we use a couple of ETFs like 
BTAL. It's like a long, short mm-hmm. market neutral ETF. It's up 3%. You know, gold, precious metals, anywhere between, you know, 2 to 4%. We use a merger RBTF, MNA, uh, which is down two, but, you know, it's outperforming the S&P. So, you know, I think, like, we've got a, a combination of, like, you know, the, the need to hedge, you know, inflation, be more global. I think you want to be more active. Um, you know, expect a lot more volatility, right? The Fed is, you know, behind the curve, right? So, you know, we all know that. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, they've been jawboning in the marketplace and have done already a lot of tightening indirectly with their banter. But, you know, James Bullard, who is, you know, the president of the the St. Louis Fed, he's, you know, out there calling for 1%, you know, in Fed funds by, you know, the summertime. So I think it's a real tricky part of where we are in the cycle. So, that's our message. Be global, be more active, include alts, you know, don't expect the returns that we've had in years prior. And, you know, typically when you get this rate hiking cycle, there's this rotation out of growth into value. And John, just a couple minutes left, you know, as I was looking at the strategy underlying PPI, I always like to think about, okay, what can go wrong here? And just playing devil's advocate, you mentioned the Fed being behind the curve. Let's say the Fed does their job properly and they aggressively hike rates Perhaps they run off their balance sheet. Won't that ultimately rein in inflation? And therefore, you can make the argument inflation-sensitive areas of the market might underperform. Or does it go back to what you were saying, that you just expect this to take – this is a longer period of time we're going to be dealing with these inflationary pressures regardless of what the Fed does. I'm just curious, how do you view that uh, yin and yang? So that's a good point. Um, You know, in the 70s, inflation – was, you know, a problem for many, many years. Um, you know, I think we're still in year, you know, two, let's mm-hmm. say, effectively, or maybe you can argue one, because, you know, inflation really wasn't a problem until towards the back end of, of 2020. You know, I think inflation is like the genie that comes out of the bottle. Once it's out, it's kind of hard to, to, to get put in. I mean, co- corporations have pricing power, which is something that they haven't had for many years. So, you know, the, the new car is, you know, $5,000 more this year than it was last year, is the car company really going to decrease their price in two years because the Fed doesn't own the amount of bonds? Like, I highly doubt it. I just think we're in a new steady state for a lot of, like, goods and services. Will there be a rotation where, okay, fine, like, goods were bid up the last few years, now maybe services will be put up in the in the next year, too, because now people are going to leave their homes because now COVID is officially over? Like, yes, that could happen. But it's hard for me to think that now all of a sudden people are going to reduce their prices. So, you know, I think that was part of the reason why we wanted to have PPI actively managed. We wanted to rotate. Um, you know, I think that the idea is, that, you know, to have exposure to these four sectors. And there's a, a chart um, by Michael Kantrowitz from uh, Cornerstone Macro that shows you the sector weight of cyclicals versus growth in defensive areas of the S&P. And the cyclical sectors in the S&P are at 100-year lows. So the cyclicals are like banks, energy, industrial materials, which is the four sectors that we lean on. Um, and I just look at that chart. I'm like, you know, PPI is an offset against what you have in your portfolio, which is, you know, a lot of heavy exposure towards, you know, growth and defensives, which, you know, are crowded, expensive. And, you know, I, I think we've been arguing that PPI is a core holding um, the last point I'll make, Nate, I know we're running short of time, is that the last time the Fed tried to hike rates and unwind their balance sheet, you know, it was in 2018, and, you know, the S&P fell 
24% in three weeks. Remember the Christmas Eve massacre where the S&P fell? Like, I think it was like 4% on just Christmas Eve. You know, I, I don't think that the Fed is going to derail this recovery. It's midterm election year. Uh, and, and even if I'm wrong, we've got gold and we've got tips and we've got precious metals and PPI to kind of offset it. So um, th- that's what I'm kind of looking at and what's on my radar. It's so funny. I keep saying the exact same thing. And this is not, you know, investment advice. Just with the Fed, I'll believe it when I see it. Right. Uh, we'll see how aggressive they're actually going to get when the market reacts negatively. To your point in 2018, market goes down roughly 20 percent and they quickly reverse course. And so until I see that they're willing to stand there and let the markets go down 20, 30, 40 percent in the face of, you know, in, in an attempt to control inflation, then you almost have to just bet that they're not going to do that. But, uh, you know, to your point, I think anytime you're building a portfolio, you want to have a, a nice mix of assets and diversification, of which that should include inflation hedges, even if you're not in an inflationary environment. Obviously, we are in one now. So uh, in any event, John, congrats on the launch of PPI. I certainly wish you the best of luck on that. Always enjoy connecting. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. That was John Davi, founder and chief investment officer at Astoria Portfolio Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Valkyrie Funds. If you would like to learn more about the Valkyrie Bitcoin Strategy ETF, you can visit www.valkyrie-funds.com BTF. Next week, I'll be joined by Northern Trust's Michael Natel. Of course, Northern Trust offers FlexShares ETFs, and Michael and I will continue this discussion around uh, inflation and this corner the Fed's painted themselves into. And then Amplify's Christian Magoon will spotlight another inflation hedging ETF. They just launched this, the Amplify Inflation Fighter ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.